0: Amen. Thank you, Luke, and the rest of the music team for leading us in worship through song. Uh, What a joy to be back with you all and to open God's Word together. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 2? Mark chapter 2. If I were to ask you, what your most pressing and immediate need right now is, what would you say? What's your most pressing need? What is your most immediate need? Maybe it's something dealing with your family. Maybe it's a relationship that you have that is um, struggling with reconciliation or restoration. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's a job. What would your greatest need be? If we could talk, what would your greatest need be? One of the questions that I I love posing to people is, if I could give you $100,000, which I can't, but if I could, what would you do with it? Tell me right now what you you would do. And usually that reveals either their heart's greatest affection or their heart's greatest need, what they determine is their heart's greatest need, or maybe a combination of the two. I wonder what you would do. If I could give you $100,000 right now, what would you do with it? What's your deepest need? Another question, have you ever had that moment where somebody graciously meets a need that you have? They do something for you. They give something to you. They're very generous. They're very kind. They give you something to meet a need that you have, but it's not the deepest need that you have, and you think, thank you, that's kind, but in your heart of hearts, you're wondering, how did you not know I had a deeper need? This morning... We are just going to stare at Jesus meeting a need that a man had, which he didn't even know was his deepest need. And in seeing Jesus do this, we will be blown away by his kindness, his tenderness, and the reality that he desires to meet that need in your hearts today. So let's read our text this morning, Mark chapter 2. Verses 1 through 12, and then we will ask God's blessing on our time as we dive in. When Jesus had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, being unable to get To him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But... So that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. These are the words of our sovereign God. Let's ask that he would write their truths on our hearts this morning. Father, we are so grateful for the privilege of opening your word, for the privilege of studying it, of giving careful attention to it. But we know that if we do that without you opening our eyes, it will be a fruitless endeavor. We know there is no point in us trying to get something on our own ability, by our own wisdom, by our own reasoning. We have fleshly eyes and we desperately need you to open our spiritual eyes to see. And that's why we pray every Lord's day that you, Holy Spirit, would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. God, give us help. And God, I pray this morning that you would apply the gospel to our hearts in such a way where we would see and savor the work that you are doing in meeting our deepest needs. Even if they are not the needs that we were expecting you to meet. May we receive your love and live on that love even in these moments while you tangibly and practically love us through ministering your word to us. Jesus, be exalted as we stare at you. We pray in your name, amen. As we've been studying through the gospel of Mark, we have been looking for two main things. Number one, we have been wanting to stare at Jesus. And then number two, we have been wanting to be transformed by him As we stare at him, and that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. We are just simply going to stare at Jesus and take this narrative as a whole and then look to be transformed by him. By way of reminder as well, we have already been in one chapter of Mark, and we've seen that Mark is writing to prove that Jesus is the one true king. He's just not the king that everyone expected him to be. He is Messiah, but not the way that people thought that he was going to rule, to conquer, and to reign. But to prove that Jesus is the Messiah... Mark is going to open his gospel by saying, number one, he has a forerunner in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecy. John the Baptist is the forerunner. That's why Mark starts his gospel by staring at John and not Jesus. John is proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Then we have the coronation of the king at the baptism of Jesus where he is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on Christ. And then he is compelled to go into the wilderness where he has authority over the devil He is tempted and he proves to be successful in every single endeavor by not succumbing to sin or temptation. He has authority over Satan. If he is king, he has to have authority. And who does he have authority over? Mark tells us time and time again, he has authority over Satan. He has authority over demons. He has authority over sin. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over sinners by calling those two pairs of brothers to follow him. And they do. He has authority over the spiritual realm, over the physical realm. And last time we were together in this amazing gospel, we saw Jesus having authority over sickness, specifically the sickness of leprosy. And we saw how Jesus traded places with the leper. You remember the leper was the outcast and Jesus was walking around freely. He could go anywhere. And then because Jesus heals that leper, He says, don't tell anyone what's happened to you. Uh, The leper doesn't obey that. And he tells everyone and they trade places. Now the leper can go anywhere he wants to, but Jesus is now in seclusion. Verse 45 in Mark chapter one, the leper goes out, begins to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed in unpopulated areas. That's the wilderness, stayed out in the wilderness. And they're coming to him from everywhere. So we come to our text this morning, verse one, when he had come back from the wilderness to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. There's a crowd that's formed. The houses that are in Capernaum that we have dug up in Israel, they're typically around Five yards wide by five yards long. They're very small. You could fit a couple dozen people in there, squish them in tightly like sardines. And that's what the crowd looks like. There's a crowd and he's speaking the word, doing what he said. This is what I came to do. There's a crowd that's curious to see him. They want to hear what he has to say, but more than that, they want to see what he's going to do. They know what he's done. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. They want to see what he's going to do. They want to be entertained by what he's going to do. And that's why we need to be reminded right off the bat that crowds are no measure of success. In fact, in Jesus's ministry, usually the more crowds gathered, the worse things were for Jesus. Remember, Jesus wants quality, not quantity. Being in the crowd is not the same as being a disciple. Notice there's a crowd around Jesus, but there are only four disciples at this point, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Big crowds don't equal success. And I think right right away, we need to stop and ask the question, what did the crowds think their deepest need was? Just freedom from boredom, right? I, I have my life together. I just would like to see something that's exciting I'd like to be uh, wowed. I'd like to be awed. I'd like to just enjoy something. My life's kind of boring and I'd like some entertainment. Or maybe it's fellowship, not in a biblical sense of the word, but just somebody to rub shoulders with, somebody next to you, somebody that you can be in a crowd with. And I wonder if even in a, you know, quote unquote crowd like we have here at church, I wonder if some of you are here in the crowd for that exact reason. If you're here just to be friends with people, maybe to just see something that is out of the ordinary for you, but you're not a disciple. Being in the crowd does not mean that you are a disciple. Popularity is not the same as obedience in Jesus' mind. Jesus came for worshipers, not for a frenzied crowd. So he's not going to just start doing miracles. He's going to preach the word. He knows their deepest need. And so therefore he's preaching, not doing miracles. End of verse two, he's speaking the word to them. That's all Mark says. Sometimes I get frustrated with Mark because he goes so quickly. I want to know what he's preaching. I want to know what he's saying to this crowd. He knows why they're there. Is he addressing those issues? What is he saying? But Mark moves so quickly in his gospel that we are not told. It's very interesting, just by way of comparing Mark to Luke's gospel, except for the parables in chapter four of Mark and the all of that discourse in chapter 13, Jesus is rarely seen speaking for longer than a minute. If you were to take a red letter edition of the Gospel of Mark, you know a red letter edition where the words of Jesus that are spoken are in red? if you were to take a red letter edition of Mark and you timed yourself reading only Jesus's words, the amount of time you would spend reading would be just about 20 minutes. The whole book takes about an hour and a half to read and you would spend 20 minutes for the entire hour and a half of the the book, 20 minutes are Jesus's words. Compare that to Luke. Luke would take two and a half hours to read and Jesus speaks in a red letter edition of Luke for over an hour. Mark is so urgent in telling us this story that he rarely pauses to give us a discourse of what Jesus is saying. Verse three, we are immediately brought to the action at hand. They came. We're not told who they are. We're just told they're four men. They're bringing a paralytic carried by these four individuals. Four men, a paralyzed man brought by his four friends. So there's five guys together And why are they bringing this man to Jesus? Not a trick question. It's to be healed. They're bringing him to be healed. But they're unable, verse 4, to get to him. Apparently this crowd is not very sympathetic, right? Like, guys, there's a a paralyzed man that's wanting to get to Jesus. And I'm sure they said, hey, could you please move? Hey, can you see our our friend here? And this unsympathetic crowd says, no, we want to watch Jesus. We want to listen to Jesus. So... Because of the crowd and because of their lack of sympathy, these four men do what any logical thing, what any logical person would do, which is go up to the roof and cut a hole in the roof. They decide, you know what, since we can't get through the door, we're going to go up to the roof and cut a hole in the roof. Luke chapter 5 tells us in a parallel account of the story that they had to pull back tiles to get down into the house. That word for tile is another word for baked clay or ceramics. Typically roofs back then would be um, a lot of dirt, a lot of um, just kind of thatched roof palm branches or uh, pieces of wood and then some dirt and some clay and hardened so that uh, you would have some form of protection. So they're just digging around. And so a lot of people will say as they're preaching through this text, they'll say, well, it wasn't the kind of roof like our kind of roof. So if you're thinking about that, don't think about that. Agreed. But still, they're making a hole in the roof. They're making a hole while Jesus is preaching. What must the owner of this house have been thinking? This is where my sanctified imagination just goes wild. I want to know: did they get the hole right the first time they dug it? I can just see Jesus preaching. And if they want to get to Jesus, they would have to make a hole in there right in front of him, and drop down. And I just see them first attempt, you know, way off in the corner and just ahead, pop in. Nope, not there yet, Jim. Back up, come over here, over, here. Nope. over this way. And then back over, okay, here we go. So you can hear sounds up on the roof. You can probably see some dirt that's flying as they're walking across it. Everybody's trying to maintain eye contact with Jesus, but they're starting to get distracted. Look at the tenacity of these four friends. They could easily have looked at the door, seen the crowd, known that there's no way in, and said, I guess it's not the Lord's will. If the Lord had willed it, there would have been a way. There's no way. It's not God's will. But they didn't. I wonder, do you go to Jesus with the same level of confidence, of urgency, and of desperation as these four men do? Their faith is persistent. They will not give up. Their faith is creative. If it doesn't work this way, we'll go over the top. Their faith is sacrificial. This is going to take a lot of work. It's going to be heavy. It's going to be hard work. It's going to take time. If you had been one of these friends, would you have stopped at the door? Would you have said, you know what? This place is full. Let's come back another time. Or would you have been like they are? They're like Jacob in the Old Testament who says, I will not leave you until you, angel of the Lord, until you bless me. I will not go. Sometimes if you really believe and you have faith, you will climb up on somebody's roof and start digging because you're desperate and you know the one who can help. This is a crazy, dramatic scene. We've had some fun experiences here at CBC with some random uh, distractions that have happened. If you remember, uh, if you were here for when the fire alarm got pulled and um, I was preaching and somebody, some random person pulled the fire alarm. And so it just started ringing. And I thought, what do I do? Because I cannot beat a fire alarm in volume. I tried for a little while. It wasn't going to work. I stopped, kept preaching. Once it died down, and then somebody did it again. We've had random things happen. We've had uh, people walk in through the side doors. We've had uh, things fall behind me. We've had random things, but nothing would be so distracting as if during a sermon, a hole opens up in the roof and somebody comes falling through. it. That stops everything. There's no way. We're gonna pray, amen, let's go home. Service is done. That's, what, that's what's happening here. They dug the opening, they let down the pallet, And Jesus sees them, verse five, everything stops. Jesus sees them, sees their faith, turns to the paralytic, opens his mouth, says, son, which is a term of endearment. It's like my child or my friend. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. I don't think anyone saw that coming. If you would have asked all of those people, what is the likely response to what Jesus is about to say? Probably top of the list, right? A little family feud here. All the responses, number one, would have been, excuse me, I'm preaching, right? Number two would have been, I will heal you and then please walk away. I don't think anybody would have guessed that out of Jesus' mouth, the first words would have been, your sins are forgiven, Again, in my sanctified imagination, I see this man. I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you so desperately want to hear something that you hear it even though that person isn't saying that. I hear this man doing this. I see this man doing this where he's lying on the bed. He's finally in front of Jesus. Jesus looks at him and says, son, he hears that term of endearment and he thinks I'm gonna be healed. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And I just picture the man like, yes, thinking that all he's heard right now is I've been healed. And he's trying to get up and he's pushing up on the the pallet and it's not working. He goes, wait, time out. What did you say? That's not what my friends were dropping me down here for. Clearly, Jesus, you had to have known I want to be healed. But my friends, that's exactly what Jesus is trying to show us. By coming to Jesus, asking only for his body to be healed, this man was not going to his deepest need. And I think that there are so many times when we do the exact same thing with Jesus. Maybe it's not being paralyzed. Maybe it's not even a physical issue. But we say, God, if you could help my family, if you could just help fix my friends, if you could just give me that gift that I'm wanting in a spouse or a child or the right job or more money, then I'd be happy, then I'd be okay, then my deepest need would be met. But Jesus is showing us that the problem that we have is much deeper. It's much more difficult to deal with. In fact, only he can truly meet our deepest need. I've heard it put this way before. Quote, the worst practical joke that God can play on you is granting you your deepest wish. Now, obviously, God doesn't play practical jokes, but the point remains. He knows what we see as our deepest need, and he knows that that, if he were to meet it, wouldn't be ultimately satisfying. Just think of this man. Sure, it would be awesome to walk again, but the euphoria of that healing will wear off one day. I remember I've had a few broken bones in my day and I remember getting my cast off in my hand and my thumb was better again and I could move it and I could use it. And I remember thinking, I will never again not wake up every morning and thank God for the use of my thumb. Like, thank you, Lord. I don't have to wrap it when I shower and I can finally use it. Like I will never take my thumb for granted ever again. That took me maybe 72 hours (laughs) to forget that my thumb was ever broken the euphoria is going to wear off. I don't even give that a second thought. And this man wouldn't have either. So what Jesus is doing here is he is saying to this man, I'm not going to play that practical joke on you. I'm not just going to heal your body and you think that you've gotten your deepest wish. I'm going to go much deeper than you ever dared to imagine. This is so perfectly illustrated in C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. A boy named Eustace hates everyone and just can't seem to get along with anyone. And at one point in the book, they move to an island. He goes to a cave on that island all by himself. He finds all of these riches and he thinks that now because I'm rich, I can pay everybody back that I hate. I can get back at them. I can take revenge. He falls asleep with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart. And so he wakes up as an actual dragon. And he's in despair because he knows he'll never get off that island. He tries to rip off the scales of his dragon-like skin, of his dragonness, but he can't get it off. He tries to keep gnawing at it, biting it, scratching it, pulling scales off of him. "I've got to get this off of me." But he can't, until Aslan, the Christ figure, comes to the scene. He's a lion, and he shows up and he sees Eustace and he tells Eustace that he alone can take the dragon's skin off. Eustace says, quote, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done to myself the other three times. But those times hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than all the others had been. Then he caught a hold of me and threw me into the water. It hurt like anything, but only for a moment. And then I saw that I had turned into a boy again. We read that story and we just instantly see ourselves. We have tried to meet our deepest needs. We've tried to do the work on our own to get to our hearts, but we know we can't. And we know that when God does, it hurts. But Jesus never hurts just for the purpose of hurting. He wants to get to that deepest part of our hearts. Jesus always wants wants to take us to the deepest need that we have and meet that one. So I just wonder here this morning, is God doing a work in you today where you know he is taking you to a place that's uncomfortable? He's trying to get deep into your heart. He's trying to open your eyes to things that you're not seeing. And it hurts. And I would just plead with you, don't fight it. Don't fight it. And then also, don't question his love. Just because it hurts doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Jesus goes deeper into this man's heart than this man ever expected. He meets a need this man didn't even think that he had. And notice in verse 5, this man did nothing. He literally just plopped down in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. There are no works attached to this. There's no go do these things and then your sins will be forgiven. No, it's your sins are forgiven. Now go do these things. This is justification without works. Apparently, this man had genuine saving faith. There's no works attached to this. Do this and then you'll be saved. And that is going to absolutely tick off the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees do not believe that you can have a clean slate given to you. You can only have a clean slate once you work to get it. And so we get to the Pharisees. Verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there. Mark tells us it's the scribes. Luke tells us that there's Pharisees and scribes. There, the scribes are the skilled writers who became experts in the Hebrew scriptures during the Babylonian captivity in the book of Daniel. The Pharisees were the largest Jewish party, numbering uh, around 6,000 people. You know that they were very uh, moralistic in their mindset, that all they really cared about is looking good, is behavior modification. That's why Jesus keeps going after their heart. You've heard it said, but I say to you, and so they're here, verse 6. Notice they are sitting there. Just an interesting observation. They're sitting. I don't know if everybody's sitting. My guess is they're standing. My guess is most of the people in that room are standing because they're trying to squish in to hear Jesus but not the Pharisees or the scribes. No, they're sitting. And I bet that they're sitting like those people. Have you ever had that where maybe at a Bible study, there's not enough room, and people are sitting on the ground. And there's people that are just laying on the ground and you're like, could you just sit normal? Can you move? Because I need to sit in here. And they're like, no, I'm just comfortable here. That's how I'm guessing these people are sitting. Like we could fit more people in here if you guys would sit like normal humans. And they're like, nope, We're, we are the elite. It's standing room only, but they're just sprawled out in front of Jesus. But they say, verse 7, why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Blaspheming is when you claim to be God, but you're not. They totally get it. Only God can forgive sins. That's their accusation. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You are claiming to be able to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. So therefore, since you're not God, you're blaspheming. They know Old Testament text, Isaiah 43, verse 25, Micah chapter 7, verse 18, that clearly say only God can forgive sins. Even in Jewish thinking, the Messiah himself couldn't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sin. And it makes logical sense. If we sinned against God, then only God can grant us that forgiveness, right? This makes sense. If if Ricky punches Christian, and then uh, I go up to Ricky and I say, I-, "I forgive you." Christian would say, "Excuse me, you weren't a part of this." <laughs> Ricky punched me. I have to say, "I forgive you." It totally makes sense, reasonably, to say only God can forgive, because God is the one that we are sinning against the most in our offensive, sinful nature, and that's they, they they totally get it. He's claiming to be God. Jesus is claiming here to be God, and either he is. Or he isn't. There is no middle ground here. And so the religious leaders say, no, you're not God, so you're blaspheming. And this is the charge that's going to follow Jesus all the way to the cross. This is the charge that they will use to get him killed. They hate that he is claiming to be God. By the way, Jesus is a blasphemer if he is not God. He's claiming to be God. And if he's not God, then absolutely he's blaspheming. They totally get it, but they will not concede to the reality that Jesus is who he claims to be. That's the bottom line. He claims to be God, and they say no. So my question is, who is the real paralytic in this story? It's not this man. He couldn't move his limbs. It's the Pharisees and the scribes who couldn't feel in their hearts. Which is worse, to have an unfeeling heart or unfeeling legs? These are spiritually paralyzed individuals. Jesus knows this, verse 8, immediately. Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? He knows they're arguing. He receives thus far in the Gospel of Mark um, objections from the devil, objections from demons, and now we see objections from the religious leaders. And by the way, these objections will be the worst of all of the objections. These controversies that will follow Jesus through the gospel of Mark, there is no stiffer opposition against Jesus than that of the religious leaders. In fact, Mark chapter two, verses one through Mark chapter three, verse six, it comprises five different controversies with the religious leaders. This is the first of five. And so Jesus asks them, he reasons with them. He says, which is easier to say. Rabbis back then often formulated questions based off of the phrase, how much more? The Jewish leader Hillel, who was actually probably present in the temple at the time when 12-year-old Jesus was teaching there, he made this phrase popular in dialogue, how much more? And so that's what Jesus is asking. How much more difficult is it? Tell me which is more difficult. Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, Or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. Now, in commentaries, there is a lot of ink spilled on these two statements, on this question. What is Jesus trying to do? I think it's simple. It's a fun question, but I think it's very simple what he's trying to get at. Here's what he's trying to say. How do you know that I can do what I claim to do? Which is easier? I just said... Your sins are forgiven. And does anybody know if that actually took place? Can anybody tell? If his sins truly were forgiven, does he just start glowing? Like, yep, there it is. Does, he, does a halo descend from the sky and, oh, he is forgiven. Is there any verifiable external proof that this man's sins have been forgiven? Is there any verifiable proof that Jesus did what he claimed to have done? And the answer is no. So it's a lot easier to just say those words. I could say those words about all of you. Your sins are forgiven. Who knows if it actually took place? But to say, get up, pick up your bed and walk, that's a hard statement because if Jesus does not have the power to do that and it doesn't happen, then everyone there will know he's a fraud. It's much harder to say, get up because that is verifiable. Did that healing actually take place? It's either a yes or a no based off of what this man's going to do. By the way, both of these things are only things God can do. Only God can heal and only God can forgive. But only one of these things is verifiable. They don't care about his power here. They don't care about the fact that he can do either of those. They care about the reality that he claims to have authority to do this. I am God. So he says, verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, I, I just said that this man's sins are forgiven, but to prove to you that that actually took place, that I have authority, that I have done that, that I'm God, and that I'm able to do that, I will say to you, pick up your bed and walk. So that, by the way, frames why Jesus does miracles. Why does Jesus do any miracle that he does? The ultimate purpose, the foundational purpose for why Jesus does any miracle is to validate the claims that he's making about himself. He says, I'm God. Everybody around him goes, "Mm, you're just a human, prove it. And he proves it through his miracles. This is why... Moses did miracles all the way back in the book of Exodus, right? Goes before Pharaoh, uh, let my people go. How do I know that God's actually speaking through you? Well, I can put my hand in my jacket, pull it out. It's leprosy, put it back, it's healed. I can throw my staff down. All of those miracles, any miracle anybody, anybody does in the Bible is done for the purpose of validating the claims that they're making. So Jesus is here validating his claims. By the way, there's a number of other reasons why Jesus does miracles. He gives object lessons in miracles. He makes analogies in miracles. He points us to greater realities in his miracles. He gives us signs. He loves the lost. He helps the hurting. He reverses the curse and he shows forth his glory. But the primary reason that Jesus performs miracles is to validate the claims that he's making. And some in evangelicalism, they look to and stare at the secondary reasons. They turn Jesus into a social gospel worker. Just feed the hungry, give God's love, you've done your job. And yes, we should feed the hungry. Yes, we should take care of those who are hurting. But if that's all that we do, if they have warm bellies, if they have full bellies, and they have a roof over their head, but they don't have the gospel, then they just get to enjoy this life and comfort, and then they go to hell. That's not what we want. That's not what Jesus wants. And so he is using the miracles to validate, I claim to be God come in the flesh and I claim to be the only way to get to the father. And let me prove that it's true. And so he says, verse 11, to prove that I have authority, honor, to forgive sins, to prove that I am God, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up. And immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. Remember, we said there's a formula to the miracles that Jesus does. He takes care of the problem and the effects of the problem. That's what we're seeing here. If there was a paralyzed individual who was somehow able to regain the use of their limbs... They would, through that modern medical uh, miracle, they would have to go through physical therapy for months, if not years, because all of their atrophied muscles would not be working properly. But not this man. Because this man isn't being healed by a doctor, this man is being healed by God. And when God heals you, he takes care of the problem, the paralyzation of your body, and he takes care of the effects of the problem, all of those atrophied muscles. He's not walking away. I don't know how you picture it in your mind when he gets up, but he's not wobbling on his knees and, oh, I can't walk. He just stands up, grabs his bed and goes home. Instant miracle. And so, of course, the crowd is going to say, what just happened? We've never seen anything like this. And we really see in their response and in this whole account, we see three main responses to the work of Christ. We see a very excited, but fickle and shallow enthusiasm by the crowds. They're going to say, this guy's amazing. They're going to glorify God, but they're not going to follow Jesus. We see the response of these four men that they have faith. They have faith. They, they pursue healing, and then they're going to be given something even greater, but they have faith. We see the unbelief of the scribes and the Pharisees. They won't believe. Even when Jesus does this, this is the point where they say, okay, we're wrong. You didn't blaspheme. You're God but they don't do it. These same three responses are the three responses you see every single time you share the gospel. This is what you see in Acts 17 when Paul is preaching the gospel at Mars Hill. And Paul, after preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one group of people says, we'd like to hear more. We're not convinced. We'd like to hear more. One group of people says, you're dead wrong. We will not listen to you anymore. And one group of people says, we believe you wholeheartedly and we want to follow you and teach as well. These are the three responses that you will always have As you give the gospel message to those around you. You've never seen anything like this. Jesus proves that he has authority on earth to forgive sin. If Jesus can forgive sin. Then he is God. If he isn't God then we shouldn't follow him. And we frankly shouldn't even be here. But if he is God. Then my question is why aren't you following him? Why aren't you following him? So. I end where I began. What do you believe your greatest need is? What is your deepest need? What is your greatest need? The greatest need of man is to escape the wrath of God and to find safety and security in the person of God. The greatest need of man is for sin to be forgiven and for wrath to be removed and for reconciliation and relationship to happen. That is the greatest need that we have. And that's why Jesus says to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. That's your greatest need. Not the paralysis, but the heart. I wonder if the paralytic could be here right now. If he could speak to all of us. I wonder what he would say. I think he'd say something like this. I know now why Jesus forgave my sins First, of the two great blessings that I was given on that day, the spiritual blessing of being forgiven was by far the greater. It would be better to lie flat on your back in this life and dance around for all of eternity than to be dancing around in this life and then spend all eternity in judgment and punishment for sins. If you get what you've always wanted in this life, and it is not God himself, then ultimately you will be unhappy. And that's why God says, I don't want to do that to you. I want to meet your deepest needs so that you can be satisfied for all of eternity. Jesus knows this man's deepest need. He doesn't want us to get caught up in the things around us that matter, but don't matter as much as the thing that matters the most. Not the disease in our bodies, but the disease in our soul. What's worse than crippled legs is having crippling guilt. And so Jesus shows up and says, you are forgiven. People need to be assured that they are forgiven. They need an assurance of pardon. And this paralytic gets that. Your sins are forgiven. I remember a story that R.C. Sproul used to tell of a psychiatrist who asked him to come on to his staff. R.C. said, why do you want me? I'm not a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist answered and said, R.C., 95% of my clients don't need a psychiatrist. They need a pastor because their lives are being destroyed by unresolved guilt. Do you ever wish that Jesus... But just put his hand on your head and say, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. The blessing of this passage and this morning is that he is saying that to you now through his word. And he's saying that to you now through these elements. If you have understood your need for a savior and you have seen that Jesus alone provides a way of escape from punishment for sins, but even better, he provides a way of access and entrance into a right relationship with God the Father. If you know that, and if you glory in the fact that he alone can save you and you love him, then he says to you this morning, your sins are forgiven. I dealt with all of that at the cross. I paid for your sins at the cross. Once for all, you are forgiven. But I wonder if you're here this morning and you would say, like the paralytic, I have a need that I think is deeper than just forgiveness of sins. I have something that God, if you could take care of this, then maybe I would believe you for forgiveness. He would say this morning, no, 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 your deepest need is forgiveness. And I have met that need, and therefore every other need I can meet. And if I choose not to, I'm doing so because I love you. There's something better for you. But first, you have to come to me for the forgiveness of sins before you get any of the other benefits. And I would plead with you, turn to Christ for forgiveness. Don't turn to Christ for any other thing that you would feel is your deepest need. How is it possible that we can be forgiven? How is it possible that we can be assured of pardon before the Lord that we have been acquitted of every wrongdoing? And even better than that, we have been given a perfect record of righteousness so that it looks like we have done everything right. Well, it's in this passage. Remember how Jesus said, which is easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no external evidence of that happening. But I think inside of this question, which is easier to do? Which is easier for Jesus to do? Oh, it's much easier for him to heal this man. Just say the word, snap your finger. It's a piece of cake for Jesus to heal this man. It's going to be a much harder thing for him to be able to live out forgiving this man's sins. Because for that, he is going to have to go to the cross and die. He's going to have to be the sin bearer, the wrath remover and die in our place. So even here, as early as Mark chapter two, the shadow of the cross is hanging over our savior. But he will do that. He will go to the cross. He will die. He will bear our sin and suffer in our place with joy because he wants to give you your soul's deepest wish. One that maybe you never even knew that you had, but you have had it all along. And that wish is to be satisfied in him and by him alone. Father, we thank you so much for this text that just reminds us of the glory of Christ. We are able to stare at him and we're able to see the way that he works. We're able to see the way that he ministers to this man and even ministers to these four friends, seeing their faith. God, I pray that you would grant the gift of faith even here this morning. That we would not be like the crowds that show up just for the purpose of seeing something exciting. No, we would show up because we're worshipers of Christ. May we not be like the Pharisees and the scribes who have hard hearts and in unbelief they say, I'm going to question Jesus and everything he says and everything he does. May we be like those four friends, even bringing our friends to Jesus, whatever it might take. May we be like those four friends who who wrestle to get to Jesus. I will not leave until you bless me. And ultimately, may we learn from the paralytic this morning. That though we all have needs, and many of them are serious and deep. We have been shown this morning what our deepest need is. God, I pray that through confession of sin, we would agree with that statement. We would agree with what you have said this morning. Our deepest need is our sinful souls that need forgiveness. And may we cry out to you knowing that you are filled with mercy, full of loving kindness, abounding with grace. And even as we sang earlier, you are the friend of sinners. So Father, may we, even as we prepare to partake of communion, may we receive the assurance of pardon that you would speak to us now through these elements. Your sins are forgiven. Now, get up. Go from here and tell everyone that they too can have their deepest need met only in Christ alone.